Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey guys, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is presented by mybookie.ag and that if you use the promo code MATTEK, M-A-T-T-E-K, that you will get a 50% deposit bonus on your first deposit. And given that you are a listener to this podcast, I would assume you're relatively knowledgeable about sports and I would trust you to try your edge on the online sports book. You can lay down some money and get in on the action at one of the safest online sports books in the world. It's the only one that I am currently using. You can wager on all sorts of different outcomes on mybookie.ag, soccer, football, any major league, esports. You can even create your own player props, which is useful for me because if you know anything about me, I do enjoy uh, a good player prop. So if you deposit using the promo code MATTEK, M-A-T-T-E-K, you get a you get a 50% de- bonus when you deposit and i will add this for listeners of the takecast if you deposit using the promo code matic and you send proof of it to me on twitter i will follow you on twitter and you can have access to me via dms whenever you want that's the that's the takecast bonus that i'm adding in association with the mybookie.ag deposit bonus now let's get back to the show Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. This episode of the podcast features authors Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson from the Wall Street Journal. They are publishing a book on December 4th entitled The Club, and it is about the business history of the English Premier League, how the English Premier League became the league that it is today. Uh, The conversation that we have is not just about the book, of course, but about the process in writing the book, Josh and John's history with soccer, and some of the larger questions that exist in the world of uh, of soccer from, from the United States to Europe to Abu Dhabi, everywhere that soccer uh, needs to be discussed. We kind of cover all of those topics in this interview. I think you guys will really appreciate it. Even if you're not the biggest soccer fans in the world, I think that this is an entertaining and enjoyable episode for all of you. If you're liking the show, if you want to support it, you can, of course, leave a rating and review on iTunes, which is always helpful. And if you really like the show and really want to support it, we have a Patreon that you can support at patreon.com slash takecast. Daily Roto is a mostly proud sponsor of the TakeCast, a mostly sports podcast. TakeCast listeners can save 10% at Daily Roto with the promo code Janis, J-A-N-I-S. If you are playing on DraftKings or FanDuel, Daily Roto will help you improve your daily fantasy results this fall and save time in the process with lineup optimizers, ownership projections, fantasy projections, premium content, and much more. They have all the good stuff that you want to help you make money at sports betting and daily fantasy. Their new lineup optimizer will let you build optimal GPP teams with stacks based on their projections faster than I can punt money off betting on Peter Uline. Sure, you can play the guys that I recommend each week, but shouldn't you also get advice from a proven daily fantasy winner like Drew Dinkmeyer? Yes, I do have better hair than Drew, but I also have his cell phone number, and that makes me a winner almost as much as it makes him a winner. 
of the DraftKings Millionaire Maker. And it's not just fantasy. They have tools to bet on player props, golf matchups, and a customizable NFL game simulator for this fall. Save 10% with promo code Janice today. All right, everyone would like to welcome Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson to the show. They have a book coming out, I believe, on December 4th entitled The Club, which is a book about how the English Premier League became the English Premier League from the from the ashes that was uh, the English football pyramid in the 1980s to what it is now. And uh, before we get into talking about the book, uh, what, first of all, John and then Josh, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, hey, I'm uh, I'm John Clegg. Um, we are both um, reporters at the Wall Street Journal. I'm actually an editor now, and um, yeah, we I um, grew up in Britain and moved to the US in 2012. And Josh, you are you were well, you yeah. lived here and moved back and all over the place. Yeah, I'm uh, Josh Robinson for European Sports for the Wall Street Journal. I'm based over in Europe now. Uh, I actually grew up over there as well, even though I don't sound like it. Um, I've lived on both sides of the Atlantic and, uh, and I spend most of my time covering English soccer now. So, uh, before we get into talking about the book, I would love to hear your guys' stories with soccer. I, I generally find that people that are really passionate about soccer have uh, a cool story as to how they fell in love with it, why they care so much about it. So, uh, don't disappoint with, uh, with a boring story. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm actually half French, and growing up in London in the in the '90s, as a as a half French kid, there was only really one team that, that you could support, and it was everyone's favorite French team, Arsenal. Based in North London, they had a French manager, they had best French players, and uh, it was I was kind of spoiled at that time because it's it's something to have your country win the World Cup when you're 12 years old, and also see your team go through like maybe it's greatest ever period as a teenager. That's when you're most uh, soccer impressionable. So uh, I, I was ruined for life by those, uh, by those great Arsenal teams. Are you still a big Arsenal fan now through like all of the, all of the horrible seasons? Uh, I am a neutral, impartial reporter is what I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. John? Um, yeah. I mean, mine, mine kind of is a poor story. I grew up in Essex, which is like the British equivalent of, New Jersey, and right? Um, which is like the British equivalent of the Jets. So, uh, yeah, I just like root for my local team. They're terrible, um, but um, yeah, but but I, I I started covering like soccer from like yeah straight out of college and uh, did it for the Journal. And we've done I've done what three World Cups now, two of them with Josh, and um, yeah, just was always a huge soccer fan as a kid. So a lot of a lot of League One football for you in your yeah. in your past. Yeah, certainly a lot of uh, like Championship, the second division in uh, in uh, the in, in English football. I remember taking my now wife to a game against Walsall. Uh, terrible nil nil draw, uh, early date. So somehow overcame that, and um, yeah, some bad bad football in my past. So uh, Josh actually has uh, a pretty interesting experience that he just had like while we were trying to uh, schedule this podcast, but he attempted to go to the Copa, the Copa Libertadores final in Argentina, which was the Super Classico between River Plate and Boca Juniors. 
But that game actually did not happen because of violence against the players. And while I was reading the book, I kind of thought, you know, this was actually the sort of thing with the hooliganism in England that actually probably could have happened had, you know, this massive business plan not succeeded. And so I kind of wanted Josh to speak to the experience of trying to go to that game and, uh, you know, what happens when football goes underfunded the way that Argentinian football is. Yeah, so that was uh, that was a nine thousand mile round trip from New York to see exactly no soccer balls kicked, um, and that was a, a, one of the overwhelming thoughts I had when I was down there. It's you know this this could not happen in in England anymore. It was really it was like that in the nineteen eighties when you kind of took your life in your hands when you went to uh, when you went to a Saturday soccer game, but the the rivalries between the clubs that maybe care about football too much. Um, and to see it as a as a way to play out other tensions within a city, um, that's that's kind of gone from English soccer because it's been so sanitized by the money and by also the investment in infrastructure. Um, one of the one of the most surprising things that we came across while reporting on the book is um, is that you know fan behavior really changed just as the stadiums got nicer. Um, mm-hmm. That we saw it with uh, even even small details like bathrooms people just didn't want that was that was david dean's big thing is he was just like i can't i cannot handle the bathrooms at these stadiums uh you know very valid point if you ever went into one of the bathrooms they were absolutely rancid but um yeah was it was it did it feel like a time warp like you were going back to like the 1980s yeah i mean people when as soon as they opened the gates people ran into the stadium because there was no assigned seating they were sitting (laughs) on concrete bleachers uh, which, you know, they banned in England after Hillsborough uh, just because it was shown to be over and over extremely unsafe. My, uh, my experience going to games, so I live in Kansas City in the States, so we have a really good MLS team here, Sporting Kansas City. So I've never been to a European game. So all of my experiences going to soccer games have been like the nicest state-of-the-art venues they have you know, they have food, basically food truck food inside the stadium, assigned seating. It's like a very family-friendly atmosphere. So it's actually kind of hard for me to imagine soccer being something other than that. Like, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, steel fences and like, you know, the way it is in Italy where like all the teams really are just like your political affiliation. Like a lot of Italian politics are played out through, um, you know, played out through the soccer teams. They had their their PM owned a team for a while. And I actually don't know a ton about how much English soccer is rooted in politics. It was there before the, you know, the introduction of the EPL and all the foreign money. Were these teams kind of wings of, you know, certain political parties or was that more like a kind of a uniquely Italian thing? Yeah, no, it's, um, it was actually more um, religion based. Hmm. Uh, yeah, when when a lot of those clubs, because they they all date back to like the sort of like, you know, mid nineteenth century. Most of them were sort of formed in like the eighteen fifties, sixties, seventies. Back then, that a lot of them are divided by um, Protestants and Catholics. So um, I think like uh, Man U is the Protestant team, and or no, or, Man U is heavily supported in Ireland. Right, right, but like. Liverpool is the Catholic team and yes. Everton is the Protestant team or, um, you know, the, 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 a lot of the divisions are like are by that. So um, that's one of the reasons that like the kind of rivalries then sprung up. Like obviously no one really like worries about that now. Like Britain is a very kind of secular country. So the religious affiliations have like long since sort of disappeared and been forgotten. 
for instance, we can't remember which teams are actually affiliated, <laughs> which was, but, but like, that was like how the, how the kind of rivalry started. And then I think a, a lot of the other ones were based on kind of, um, you know, like industry, like one mm-hmm. team would be the team of the dockers, you know, like the dock workers. And one team would be like the iron workers, like, you know, West Ham was, was formed by iron workers. And then Arsenal was a team of blacksmiths or whatever. And that's how, you know, then they used to, to play against each other. And, and so that's how those rivalries, but the kind of, the political affiliations aren't really felt as strongly. I, I guess you get in Scotland the the Celtic yeah. and Rangers. Again, that's a religious divide, but like also, I think that sort of like has morphed into like class and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah Britain. That's that's what it seems like to me now. Is most of the fanhood observing from overseas? It seems like a lot of it is based on class. Like yeah. you know the the super the the wealthy supporters in London are like Chelsea fans. And right. and the you know kind of the more working class I guess would be like West Ham and uh, like Crystal Palace and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Which is like sort of also to do with like how Britain has changed and like gentrification and Chelsea's like a super rich like you know chic neighborhood. To yeah, London. that's like that's like the Upper East Side of London. Yeah, right. Exactly. And 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 you know West Ham and East London is kind of like Queens or whatever. So it's like you know not as. Um, that's great. So, but it's pretty interesting because those things can change as well. Right. You know, you think about Chelsea in as we write in the book in the eighties. Chelsea was a violent club where they actually where the owner actually considered installing electrified fences for cattle right. Right. Uh, at the front of the stands. I mean, that's that's the kind of problems they had in Chelsea. Well, they're hooligans that were known as yeah. the headhunters, the Chelsea headhunters. They were like some of the most feared uh, hooligans in. Uh, now the idea of like a hooligan group like marauding through Chelsea is kind of like like you say it's like that's like comical it just wouldn't happen right they'd be threatening you with antiques and lattes today yeah yeah and I mean that is that I guess that really is more than anything the the story of this book is just how you know trillions of dollars can transform anything the the English Premier League was like not even something that would have registered to an American in 1990 and now I mean Manchester United I think probably has a claim to be one of the 10 biggest brands full stop of any product that exists in the entire world. So, so, you know, kind of what was the genesis of this book for you guys? Was it the observation that the money had the ability to transform anything? Like, was there fascination with the business machinations? Like how did the idea for this book come to you guys? I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, we were sort of, we had thought about writing a, a book about the Premier League for a long time and we're sort of looking for, you know, a way to tell like a story like that hadn't been told before. And the idea really was just like, the book is kind of a snapshot of the Premier League at 25 years old and how this, as you say, like how kind of a period of like huge growth and like rising um, valuations and, and influx of, trillions of dollars has transformed this enterprise that was originally kind of put together by a bunch of like kind of small time local millionaires and now is like has sovereign wealth funds and Russian oligarchs and like Emirati sheikhs you know as its principal owners and just like kind of looking at really like how that happened kind of from a from a a sort of 30,000 feet view like the kind of broad story of how we got from from a to b but also like it seems like this is a time when 
those changes, like the, the, the period of kind of supercharged growth has, is kind of maybe slowing down. You're seeing some of the kind of the TV rights values that went up every, every cycle, like in increments of like, you know, three times, five times what they were before. They're now starting to slow. And like, I think the latest British the round of British TV rights was actually sold for less than the previous one, which was the first time that had happened in um, like two decades. So I, I think you're starting to see the kind of reckoning of that period of like insane growth where some of the kind of problems that it's created are now sort of bubbling to the surface and the teams are like kind of at each other's throats and there's a lot of division between them and like the haves and have nots. So it's sort of this snapshot of the league, like after this kind of crazy experiment has been bubbling away for 25 years and like what where are we now what are we left with and you know we knew there there are a million different ways to tell the story of, of the premier league and how we got here how we mm -hmm. got to this sports and entertainment behemoth um and you know you could tell it from the story of tactics or what happened on the field or just the craziness of some of the characters who've come through it we sort of uh, we we thought we needed to look at this arc of of the business growth and then everything else would would sort of attach itself to that and you know there's so many so many stories have been told about it and you know it's so well documented over the last 25 years that we decided any story we told also needed to have some added value we needed to right. go back and re report these things and talk to the people who were there and we did over 100 interviews for it um with the people who were there who lived it so uh, for, for example, supporting that point, about three years ago, I read The Game of Our Lives, which is David, uh, David Goldblatt's book, kind of about a similar thing. And there really was not a ton of overlap between the two books. I learned, uh, you know, a ton more reading your guys' book. Like it was, it was a lot of brand new information. And I, I would assume it's a lot of really good anecdotes because you did the firsthand interviews. And I think he did more um, kind of like public record and putting it all in one spot. But I also think analyzing it from a business perspective, um, I, I don't know if it's really something that's been done before at all. And it's like, it's very, it's very intriguing. And I, I wish that some of the NFL owners would read the book maybe. Yeah. Right. I mean, some of the NFL owners are in the book. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I mean the, like the, what's, who's the guy who owns Tampa Bay? He owns, uh, yeah. And, and Cronky owns, uh, Arsenal and owns the Broncos. So there definitely is some overlap there. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I think like you say that, that gold black book, which is, um, which is great is, um, was kind of like a social history of Britain and how right. like we changed it. And we, our, our idea was really to sort of do a, 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 you know, our book was really kind of in the, in the boardrooms, in the like executive boxes of the Premier League for the last 25 years and, and sort of telling that story. So one of the most thought-provoking elements from the book to me was the commercial success of Manchester United. And the way it seemed to me is that a lot of what we think about Alex Ferguson and all of these United legends really kind of owes itself to the business acumen of the guys in the boardroom because, you know, Ferguson would not have been able to buy all of those amazing players. He really would not have even been you know, Alex Ferguson was hired as a smart business decision because he could come on right away and his like the, the salary he was demanding was not high at all. So the question to you guys is, you know, how much of the success of this amazing team with all these titles is due to how good they were as a business? So I think it's important to, to remember that just how backwards the running of soccer clubs was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for instance, the, the kit sponsorship deal was negotiated by the team manager you know, the, the head coach 
negotiating it with the sponsor and any money that uh, that they saw from that just went into a fund for the players, you know, and we're talking about 5,000 pounds a year, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, when Martin Edwards came into Man United and took over the club from his father, this was a guy who actually wasn't that much of a football fan. He preferred rugby, um, but had grown up in his father's, in his father's business and uh, sort of understood that there were all these other revenue streams that they really weren't, weren't profiting from. Um, you know, they, they used the stadium maybe 20, 25 times a year. That was it. Right. The, had all these seats that needed to be installed and then, and then sort of upgraded. And they realized that there was money in merchandising, there was money in corporate hospitality. And then eventually, when the time came to, uh, to talk with other owners about TV rights, that's where they realized the huge money was and they, that they needed to break away from the old structure of English soccer to get their hands on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, to get back to your question, I think, um, I think Manchester United, the brand, has definitely owes its its like current success to those early you know to the early innovations that they made in in like commercial um thinking and like corporate sponsorships um i I mean the fergie thing is a bit of a like brady belichick situation like would fergie have been as good if united hadn't you know been had the sort of first mover advantage they got from being the first team to figure out the corporate um, and marketing possibilities of the Premier League, um, you know, maybe, maybe not. But then at the same time, the fact that they were winning titles every year under Fergie meant that the people wanted to buy Manchester United jerseys right. all over the world. So it's kind of, you know, it's difficult to kind of. I mean, <clears throat> I think I think Alex Ferguson is the greatest football, like soccer manager of all time, probably. I mean, if you look at what he did, not just at Manchester United, but like winning European cups with like Aberdeen which is like absurd beating Bayern Munich and Real Madrid in like major finals with Aberdeen is is ridiculous but you you think uh, he's better you think he's better than Pep you think he's better than what Pep does with these city guys I mean see see, I don't know because I didn't get into soccer until uh 2014 which was when uh like you know they made another major push over to the United States and actually what brought me into the world of soccer was um after the World Cup, DraftKings.com, which is a daily fantasy site, added uh, added soccer, added EPL as like a, a game that you could play, like kind of as a partnership with the right. EPL. And that's actually what got me into it. So that's when I really started paying attention. So I, I was there for Moyes and Van Hall at yeah. United, right. which is like kind of this. So I actually, I, my limited, my Alex Ferguson knowledge is very limited. And, and in my short time watching soccer, you know, Pep's team seem like they are playing a, you know, a different game than everyone else, but maybe that's the experience you guys had watching Ferguson's United. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel it's kind of like, um, you know, Al Davis and the Raiders or whatever. Like now yeah. you, can't, you struggle to think of the Raiders as being like this incredible brand and like a kind of dominant sports franchise. But like if you'd ask someone in like 1985, like they'd be like Al Javis is a genius and the Raiders mm-hmm. are incredible. So yeah, I mean that's kind of that's kind of yeah. I think Fergie. I mean Fergie is just one of these guys who like because he was he was around for so long and it will likely be like a kind of unique case because he was. It's difficult to see any manager lasting for that long now. Yeah, they but just he, everyone goes for like four years and then like that's it. Like Zidane yeah. Zidane won three Champions Leagues in a row and was like, all right, I'm done. Right, right, exactly. So I, I mean, I, I guess like a, a, a better um, kind of 
comp for Fergie is more like sort of Coach K or something, where it's like, right, never happen again. And like, is he the greatest college basketball coach of all time? Probably, because just because he had the chance to make, you know, rebuild so many times. You know, Fergie won the Premier League with like six different iterations of Manchester United, which is kind of incredible. Um, I mean, what Pep is doing is pretty wild too. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, let's see if he's still, I mean, I, I have a feeling that Pep will be like one of these kind of short, short fuse guys, you know, he'll be like three years here, three years there and never be able to kind of sustain it because just because of the energy he puts into it. It's so wild that like, it sort of seems impossible for someone to sustain that over like decades. Right. Yeah. He burns himself out. Um, he had to take a year off a year out of soccer when he left yeah, Barcelona. Yeah, he he moved to New York and like spent most of his time just kind of wandering, like learning German in secret, going to Knicks games uh, and having fancy dinners with people like Gary Kasparov. Um, But he was so burnt out and so stressed out from from dealing with not just the expectations, but also the the European sports media. it's it's such a stressful job managing a, a high level soccer team. I don't think we can even begin to imagine it. These guys get finished completely consumed. So uh, actually, this this question was kind of at the bottom of our agenda, but it seems like a good time to skip to it now. I listen to a lot of European soccer podcasts just because like it tends to be better than American coverage of it, but a, a pretty widely held belief from kind of the older guard of soccer media, like, uh, you know, Barry Glenn Denning and kind of those, those older guys is that this, this city team and how good they are relative to the rest of the league is, is kind of, I don't think anyone would say it's killing the game, but it certainly has changed the game that these people watch growing up. We're like, Huddersfield Town could go to Manchester City and and it would be viable that they would get a point. And now Huddersfield Town going to Manchester City is is really just a kind of training exercise for those yeah. guys. Like it's it's not really anything for them to score six goals in a Premier League game now. And so you know th- and this is not really addressed in the book, but I'm kind of wondering your guys' thoughts on on what the dominance of this city team means for the game as a whole. Yeah, I mean I think it's important like the first thing I say is I think it's important to divorce like what Pep is doing, like with the players on the field from like the city project that like Abu Dhabi is managing. Yeah. We're, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Here too. But so I think, I, I mean, I, I think like what Pep is doing is great. Like he's bringing a style of, of soccer to, in, to England that like I certainly never thought would, would like uh, be a viable strategy. Like the, the, the way that they play the possession kind of short passing, hold the ball for the entire game like play basically play kind of like playground keep away like that. I never thought that would work in England. And like, he's kind of proven that to be totally wrong. They are like the most dominant team that I've ever seen in my lifetime for real. But, um, but so I think like what he's done in that respect is, is great for English football to show that like many different styles can, can succeed. And like, it's obviously like they're great to watch and blah, blah, blah. So I think that has been good. I think like the, the kind of existential threat is like the just the amount of money that Abu Dhabi has and is willing to throw at making Manchester City so much better than everyone else. We saw this like report that came out on Monday about how City is going to build this kind of state of the art training ground in London just for its road trips. So that like when they go on road trips, they have the best facilities mm-hmm. of anyone in the country, you know, in London as well. 
that I mean, I'm sure that like whatever that facility looks like will like definitely be better than like West Ham's train, like full time training ground or Crystal Palace's full time. Right. Training I mean, it's just like the 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 like the the advantages are going to stack up so high that like if if you have the like all the best players and the best facilities and the best manager and you just keep investing and investing, investing, like where does it end? I think that is the, is that may like th- th- there's a threat that that could kill the game. But I, I certainly don't think that's it's like what Pep is kind of doing on the on the tactics board and like on the training ground, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, and that is that is the the heart of it, right? Is that these six teams and really five teams? I I don't actually like Tottenham does not have enough money to like tot, like they're not ever going to go and sign someone for one hundred and ten million dollars. It, it's just not it's not the way Daniel Levy runs the business. But those teams are now so much better than the bottom 10 teams like like Bournemouth is having this amazing season Watford started really well and neither of them realistically had any chance of making a Champions League spot whereas I think like maybe even five years ago that was pretty possible I mean we saw Leicester City win the Premier League which is like I mean that's like the most improbable thing that's ever happened in the history of soccer it's it's so absurd but do you guys think that uh overall all this flooding of the money to the top is is you know, quote unquote, good or bad for the game of football? Well, what's clear is that, that the gulf between the, the big six and the other 14 is growing. Uh, you look yes. at the numbers, even from this season, you know, the big six are putting up more points against the bottom 14 than ever before. And the only thing that really determines it is the, is the results, the, the, the separation between them is the results between those big six now. And yeah. it still seems set to run away with it. Um, and increasingly those those six see less and less reason to be in business with the other 14. Uh, we saw it over the last couple of years as they asked for a, a bigger and bigger slice of the, the overall Premier League pie. Um, and because of that, you know, they've, they've gone and changed certain rules about how money is distributed uh, within the Premier League. And that's the first time in the 26-year history of the league that they've actually changed the original formula of how money is redistributed. The revenue sharing. Exactly. Right. Um, And, you know, the secret of the competitive balance in the Premier League was always that the top teams made, uh, you know, maybe 1.6 times what the the bottom teams made, whereas in Germany or in Spain, that that factor was three or four. Um, So the gulf grew between the top teams and the bottom teams very quickly. Here, the, the smaller teams always had enough they could continue to sign quality players and, and sort of keep up. And, you know, the, the any given Sunday thing of the Premier League where you could have a Leicester once in a blue moon. Um, I think we've, in the last couple of years, moved away from that. And I don't see a, a way for the other 14 to catch the big six. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, from from a, a person who has no real interest, like it is, it is a, a great game to watch. Uh, another thing I, I kind of thought of while reading your book is – how likely is it that the that um, the Spanish league could have done this? That this could have happened with La Liga? That if things had panned out a little bit different, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, that these teams could have been, you know, the biggest teams in world soccer? Is it uh, a language barrier thing? Uh, the way Spanish teams are run are actually different. You know, they have club presidents that are voted on, and and but that is always something I've kind of thought of in the back of my mind is, you know, Madrid and Barcelona probably have just as much brand recognition as, you know, as Manchester United or whatever. So 
you know, was there any chance that this could have ever been the Spanish league? I think like, I think there was a chance. I think that, that like in 1992, when the Premier League formed, there was an opportunity for some league to kind of do this. Basically the, the Premier League secret was that they were the first kind of soccer league to, to recognize that they were an entertainment product and right. sort of everything like that. And so they then became, you know, the, the business of like selling TV rights became their principal focus. And like, that was really how like they were able to sort of saturate coverage around the world. I think that, that in 1992, <clears throat> the world was like waiting for someone to do that. So I think yeah. if like, yeah, had been had, like, if it was like a bunch of Spanish club owners who had thought had had this idea, um, you know, that would have helped, but there are certain inbuilt advantages that the Premier League has that would have been very difficult for anyone to overcome. Like, just like you said, the, the, the mere fact that it's like in English, like yeah. helps. It's a big thing. Yeah. It's, it's a big thing. Um, the time zone thing helps as well. Like English games traditionally are played at 3 PM um, London time. Uh, on yeah. A it's nice. You, you wake up, you get a cup of coffee and the game is on at nine. It's, it's quite nice. Right. Right. Whereas in Spain, they play games. They like to play, you know, that culturally they prefer to play games late at night. And so that means that like eight, by the time Asia, like in Asia, like people watch Premier League games very late at night, but if the game started any later, like they do in Spain, they miss those games. So mm-hmm. Spanish football generally happens in the middle of the night in Asia and no one really watches. So the Premier League, like the kind of geographical like space, the language barrier, the like the, the, the sort of, um, way that football had developed so that it kicked off at a certain time all those factors like helped the Premier League kind of conquer the world in a way that would have been difficult for anyone else to do having said that I think like if, if like you say if, if one of these other leagues and, and Serie A it's Italy Italian football in 1992 was by far the best league in the world like it's kind of crazy to think which, which totally passed me by because by the time I got into soccer all those teams were broke which is like and it's crazy reading back about the game to realize like oh Ronaldo and Zlatan and you know all, all of the guys who like are even like known culturally in the states like without even being associated with the team those guys all played in Italy which is actually mind-blowing considering how that league functions now where there's really only one team with money yeah exactly exactly so so yeah in answer your question i think it would have been i think the premier league was kind of albeit those other those other leagues could have capitalized and and been bigger than they are now i think no one was set up to have as much success as the premier League. no one could have done it as well as the premier league yeah, I think, and I think that uh, that makes sense. So there's a really good anecdote in the book. This is this is my favorite anecdote from the 300 pages. Was uh, so Abu Dhabi is leading this takeover of Manchester City. They they decide they're going to buy the team, and uh, they have uh, one of the you know one of their. I don't even know what the word would be. Basically, someone who is serving as the arm of Abu Dhabi in the office, and they have Gary Cook, who was a Manchester City official. And and basically, what happens is the Sheikh says, you know, I don't. We're not going to buy the team unless we're able to sign a superstar. We got to get. We have to get a superstar in the next twenty four hours, or I'm not going to buy the team. And basically, through a language barrier, the team ends up bidding fifty million dollars for Leo Messi to Barcelona, which is of course rejected. But that was like just an example of like how crazy and kind of fly by the seat of the pants. A lot of this stuff was, so that was my favorite story from the book, but I'm kind of wondering, you know, over the course of the interviews, what was each of your guys' favorite story or anecdote that you did not know before you started researching the book? Um, yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I will say the one, one great thing about that anecdote as well is that it kind of like, it touches on 
um, one of the kind of super like interesting elements of soccer, which I think is that like, as much as it's like very like big business at the top, like very, very, like not very far beneath the surface. It's still like incredibly chaotic. And like, it's like still guys like trying to like respond to emails in the right way. Exactly. So, I mean, it like looks like it's very professional, but like, especially when it comes to transfers, the whole thing is like a really shady like situation with like a bunch of agents all claiming they represent the same player. And like the, the, the way it's regulated is like so far from like the way that like, NFL agents. I mean, like agents, agents are like probably, I mean, they're more powerful than probably anyone but the owners, which is like a crazy thing yeah. to experience in American sports because agents really are basically just a, an arm of the player. Yeah, right. I mean, if you looked at like the most powerful entities in European soccer, you'd have like Manchester United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, and like George Mendes, Ronaldo. Yeah, and Mino Raiola or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'd be like right up there with those, um, those guys. And, um, in, and in that chaos, like w one of my favorite things is still that they use fax machines. Like the fax machine is a critical part. Well, of, oh, who, there was like, a there was a, a player last summer that didn't get moved because the fax was in late. Right, yeah, I, yeah, right, yeah. I don't remember who it was, but right. like, yeah, that's a thing that they have to do. Yeah, I mean, so I think in terms of the anecdotes, I mean, one of the things that we like I, I, certainly I was. Um, surprised by and, and hadn't really read or didn't know at all was like when it came to the like founding of the Premier League quite how much it was like influenced by the NFL I didn't I didn't mm -hmm. know that at all and not just like in kind of like grand ideas about like you know um, the way that the sport was marketed or what they could do with TV like how they kind of ripped off Monday Night Football from the NFL which was like which I, I kind of knew of but like but, but beyond all that, they just like, <clears throat> these like guys who came over, David Dean, who was then the Arsenal, who was the sort of principal shareholder in Arsenal back when the Premier League was formed, Martin Edwards at Manchester United, Irving Scholar, who was the Tottenham owner at the time. These guys all came over to watch NFL games in the 1980s and just like ripped ideas straight out and like took them back. Like the, um, for instance, like um, Martin Edwards came over and saw the Jets play the Raiders and then went back home and two years later, man, you had like a black jersey that was like just yeah. modeled straight on the Raiders. And there were like a bunch of like ideas that they just, they were shamelessly ripped off from the NFL, which I, I kind of found interesting. I had no idea that like it was that much, um, that it was that much influenced by, by what was happening over here. And one of my favorite anecdotes, and it kind of speaks to this idea that like, you know, for these big corporations, in the end, so much of it is done just between two people. Mm -hmm. uh, was the, the story of the Robin Van Persie transfer from Arsenal to Man United that, you know, there have been negotiations between the two clubs that have dragged on and on. And finally, the thing that pushes it through is Alex Ferguson picking up the phone to call Arsene Wenger, you know, 40 years of combined Premier League experience between them and saying, all right, let's do this. Clearly, the, uh, the boy wants to come. And, uh, you know, we're going to sort this out. And it's Wenger sitting on the phone in the back of a car in France, uh, negotiating to get the price further and further up until the point they, they settle on a, on a high price. And uh, Fergie has to admit that Wenger could open a poker school in Glasgow if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, this was at a time when, like, managers yeah. getting on the phone to discuss the sale of, like, a major player is, like, unheard of, basically. That all happens through agents and, like, intermediaries and stuff. So that was pretty cool. Um, uh, another another really good one was that Willian was at Tottenham 
getting his medical. He was about ready to transfer there. And then basically Roman Abramovich's buddy actually owned the rights to his contract. And so he walks from one room at Tottenham, is getting ready to take the picture, and then goes, oh, sorry, guys, I actually just signed for Chelsea right now. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, all that, like, shady transfer stuff is, is amazing. Uh, we had, there was, I tell you what, we had one, uh, there was one thing, one great um, anecdote that we, uh, we weren't able to get in the book. But um, but uh, was like in an early draft, and we had to lose it because of length or whatever. But um, we spoke to um, the um, Sixers, the owners of the Seventy Sixers, yeah. who own Crystal Palace, <clears throat> and um, they were telling us how this was like a couple of years ago. I think it was before. It was before. I think it was when Simmons was still. It was before he'd kind of come back from injury so like yeah the, the so like process, 2016 20 like yeah, 2015 exactly the process was kind of still ongoing and hadn't really like kind of proven itself to be um a success at that stage um but this they had like they basically were were convinced that it was the right idea and wanted to do the same thing at crystal palace and so their idea was that crystal palace is based in like croydon in south london which is a super cosmopolitan and multicultural area in britain and that, um, you know, a bunch of great athletes come out of, of that area. And so they would like bring in a coach who would focus on like youth development and they would like get rid of like all these kind of like overpaid, like journeyman pros that they had and focus on, you know, build for the long term and build, bring through a bunch of like young players and like not think about the here and now and like think down the road and they would like go through some growing pains, but at the end of it, they would have like a kind of a bit like, you know, man you had with the Beckham gigs, skulls, like generation, they would have like a a generation of homegrown players that they could. And so they brought in a coach from um, Ajax um, in Amsterdam. Like Ajax is like the premier youth development uh, factory in European soccer. And they, and the plan was to like, let this guy have at it and, yeah, and he got five games. <laughs> and after four games, they didn't score a single goal, and they sacked him. And um, David Blitzer said to us, the vitriol that they received from the fans of Crystal Palace after four games of losing was worse than anything they experienced in the entire time in Philadelphia uh, during the process where they were like intentionally tanking, winning like 20 games a season. Well, I think, um, it, I think it's, uh, uh, it is definitely different because – you only have 38 games and those losses are so visceral sometimes. Whereas like NBA losses, not quite as visceral. You can always get them another night and there's no draft. There's no draft going on in in soccer. So it's like, well, why are we bad? Like you can at least give the fans a reason for why you're bad in, in basketball. And also there's the, the huge risk that kind of changes everything in soccer compared to, to American sports, which is relegation. Right. Um, you, you can't afford to, to be bad for even one season because, you know, if you are, suddenly you're in the second tier and there's a good chance you're never coming back because that blows a $100 million hole in your finances. Yeah, that plan works way better with like, uh, like a third tier team. Like go, buy, like go buy like Portsmouth or whatever and, and then just find a way to spend above your tier and like that because you're not going to go down if you're spending any money really in that division, but like there's the stakes are too high at the, at that level, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, So I think, uh, I think we should talk about Abu Dhabi because I think probably a lot of listeners to this show don't actually know, like they don't have a sense of like what Manchester city is, why it has the money that it does. Cause this was actually shocking to me to learn before, you know, as I got into soccer, but city used to be like, 
Huddersfield. Like they were, they were a yo-yo kind of club. Like they would go down. They were good, but they weren't like, they were not a top six team. So uh, whichever one of you wants to lead the discussion of to, you know, how the Abu Dhabi bid came about and why Sheikh Mansour chose to buy the team. So, you know, to put it in context, Man City was a, a local club founded by a, a vicar's daughter to get rowdy men away from the pub on weekends yeah. uh, in the in the eighteen eighties, um, and for mo- they had some success in the the sixties uh, and seventies, but really, you know, historically they were kind of the Mets to Man United's Yankees, um, yeah. kind of hapless for most of their history, lived in the shadow of Man United, and. When Sheikh Mansour and, and the royal family of Abu Dhabi were looking for a, an investment opportunity and really as a way to kind of uh, improve the image of Abu Dhabi abroad, they realized football was a great vehicle for that. And in 2008, they found Man City, which is effectively a blank slate. You know, it was a club in crisis with motivated sellers because their, uh, their previous owner was uh, being accused of crimes against humanity by the UN. He was a former vice president of, or prime minister of Thailand. So then that's a whole separate story. But uh, Man City came in and over the course of the next 10 years, spent over a billion dollars uh, on acquiring talent and really revolutionizing this club. And, and what made them unique compared to previous rich owners in the Premier League was that they started hiring really smart people. And that's what made them dangerous uh, to, to the rest of soccer is not only did they have money, but they had a clear vision of, of how best to do things. And I think it was Arsene Wenger who, who summed it up best. He said, they have petrol and ideas. And so that makes everything much more efficient. And they started appropriating soccer cultures from all the teams they admired that did things in the right ways, as far as they could tell. So teams like Arsenal and then Barcelona. So it's not just Pep who came over from Barcelona and imported this, this incredible soccer culture. They also hired the sporting director from there and they hired a bunch of the front office. Um, and because it was the Premier League and because it was more laissez-faire than, than a lot of the rest of European soccer, they could do pretty much whatever they wanted because they had enough money. Um, so not only did they sign great players, and, and there was financial chicanery in there as well, as we now right. know from football leagues. But really, you know, the, the bigger picture... Um, uh, of the project they were trying to execute here was something that no one had ever seen in football before. And then they took it, they took everything to its logical extreme, which was, okay, we want a presence internationally. We're going to become the first multinational soccer club. So we're going to acquire a team in New York, which is NYCFC. We're going to acquire one in Australia and one in Uruguay where we can funnel uh, young South American talent. We're going to acquire one in Spain and then, you know, branding partnership in Japan. So it's, it's really an ability to do things that no one had ever had the audacity to do and they have the money to back it up. Yeah, I, I think it's worth like, it's worth pulling back as, a bit as well and, and sort of explaining why Abu Dhabi did this and like why Qatar, right? PSG, which, which is also done, which is like, you know, these, these like desert kingdoms in the Middle East, um, like uh, basically purely financed by the fact that they're on huge oil wells. And about 20 or 30 years ago, the kind of ruling families of those nations kind of realized that at some point in the future, the oil is going to run out and we need to figure out like what to do to, you know, protect our country when that happens. And they all, the, 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 the sort of 
logical um, the logical next step was to kind of make them viable tourist destinations. And essentially, Abu Dhabi's investment in Manchester City and PSG's uh, takeover of, uh, of Qatar's takeover of, of PSG is all about branding. They want to make Abu Dhabi seem like a successful, glamorous place. Right. They want Qatar seem like a successful, glamorous place. And Dubai has done the same thing. And so they're full of sky rises and like eight star hotels. And the soccer clubs are basically, you know, extensions of the, um, you know, national tourist board. They are like like huge billboards and they just saw, they recognized European soccer as this kind of unique property that crosses borders all over the world and is these brands, you know, speak to people like in, from, you know, in, in Taiwan and in Texas and, you know, in every, you know, every sort of corner of the world that they, they give off a sense, you know, that, that, that the kind of values that they, that they have uh, are, are things that Abu Dhabi wanted to be associated with. And, and this is going to sound crazy to say, but, you know, if you spend a billion dollars in soccer in, in the grand scheme of things for these kingdoms, it's cheap. Right. You know, right. If you're building thirty billion dollar oil pipeline between like Qatar and the UAE, a billion dollars on like this incredible international marketing effort—it's a bargain. And I—I mean, I—I don't. Do you guys think it's a success? Do you think that uh, it is both a profitable business for them and like, do you think it is doing the PR job that they want it to be doing? I mean, I certainly think like there is absolutely no question that like it has raised the profile of like Qatar, I mean, had like, there is no reason for really anyone to know the name Qatar. I mean, it's, you know, you know what, that's actually a great point. Like I, like the United Arab Emirates, like I think yeah. without soccer, I wouldn't know what that was. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that like a world cup is happening there is insane. Well, we'll see. We'll but, see. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think maybe uh, not, but, but the fact that a world cup is supposed to happen there, and the fact that like we are talking about Abu Dhabi and Qatar as like huge actors in European soccer, I mean it has it has worked. Emirates and um, you know Emirates Airlines like sponsors like every like every sport around the world, like the U.S. Open tennis and like you know major golf tournaments. Like it's impossible to get away from the branding. So I feel like you know, and, and the airlines themselves are yeah. like basically a, a, a marketing exercise as well. So the airlines are running huge losses, right? But they, they are the vehicle for connecting uh, all these marketing efforts. Yeah. yeah. So I think a, a great way to end is with the extension of the premier league done all the way across Europe. And we got this from the football leagues from Der Spiegel uh, about a month ago. And then it's actually like kind of the final chapter of your book, kind of how the book ends which is basically the idea of all of the biggest clubs in Europe doing what the top six did in the Premier League, which is establishing a whole new league separate from the other pyramids that go along. And uh, the idea is basically the 15 richest teams on earth. They, they, they leave the leagues that they're in and they start their own European Super League. And I'm not exactly clear on if there's promotion and relegation or like if there are some teams that are going to be there forever like Real Madrid pays enough money they never get relegated but like Inter could get relegated because they don't have as much money so uh you know my question to you guys is is this viable is this good like would this be good for the game of soccer or would you be interested in watching it because the, I think everyone agrees Champions League football is the best like I, that's the type of soccer that I would want to watch over anything else and this is the Champions League you know 
year round, more or less. So kind of just give me your widespread thoughts on this potential league. Cause I kind of think it's going to happen. I kind of think there's so much money at stake that it seems more likely than not, that this is the way the game is going. Yeah. I, I mean, I, on that point, I think certainly it will happen. Some, some, some move will happen whereby the, the top clubs, Manchester United, Barcelona, Real Madrid will be playing on a kind of more regular basis on like a, a kind of, um, you know, in a kind of either a new competition or an adapted version of the Champions League. Yeah. Um, in kind of like the showpiece, like weekend um, fixtures, uh, whereas like Champions League now probably happens like in the, in like the middle of the week or whatever. So um, yeah, I think I think it's it's now been talked about for so long. Like football leaks only kind of exposed what we had kind of heard like privately right. talking to all the league owners, which is that like this has been going on for a long time and clubs like Manchester City are like real driving forces behind it because they recognize that there's money to be made out there and, um, and you know, they're not seeing enough of it. So I think it will happen as to like how it will happen. Like this is my, I mean, again, this is like, you know, pure kind of speculation because this, we have, we have no idea. There is no kind of model set up for how it would work, but my gut is that it will be some sort of, tweak to the Champions League whereby some teams will receive automatic berths every year. Like yeah. Real Madrid, if you've won it a certain number of times or you've qualified a certain number of times, you, you kind of no longer have to worry about where you finish in your domestic league. So it doesn't matter if Real Madrid finished eighth in Spain, which is kind of impossible to imagine, but whatever. I mean, they would, all, they would automatically be in the Premier League, in the, in, the, in the Super League, Champions League, whatever. And then there'll be some teams that do qualify so there'll be some new teams every year like one year it might be Inter and then the next it'll be you know Napoli or whatever so right um, and then and so I think it'll be like a gradual tweak to the Champions League format whereby they introduce automatic berths and then also gradually move games from the middle of the week to the weekend and so it'll be a kind of you know a series of small steps that like in five years time it will it will kind of look like a Super League. The games we played on the weekends in Manchester United and Real Madrid will play like eight times a season or whatever, but it won't be a kind of dramatic breakaway like the Premier League was, where it was just like, we're no longer part of the English League, we're out. I think they'll still be part of those leagues. They just, those games will seem less important than they are now. And, and one of the key points is that guaranteed births uh, aspect of it, which is, you know, that's, that's what all these teams want most because nothing freaks them out more than, than the prospect of missing out on... Yeah, than United being in 10th right now. Yeah, exactly. And thinking, well, we're going to miss out on 30 or 40 million euros next season. So what they, what they all want to lock in is the revenue from television rights in the Premier League and in Europe. And if they can be sure that that's coming, then or they will do anything to, to make that happen. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's a product. I actually think it's like a very uniquely American centered product because it's less to learn. You don't have to learn about promotion and relegation. You don't have to learn about Crystal Palace. You don't have to learn about Girona. Like you, you just know these 10 teams and really the players probably just switch like Neymar probably plays for like all eight of them at some point in his career. And you just know the players. And I, yeah. so I, I actually think it's like, I agree. I agree with you, John. I think like, this is something that's like, kind of, like honestly kind of inevitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, whether it's like five years or ten years, but yeah, I think it, I think for sure it, it will it will happen. I mean, um, yeah, whether it's good in the long run, I mean, yeah, I think it, I think I think it will make it more a more compelling global property, like you said. Right. Like it's it, you know, I, I don't know, 
I, I don't know what the kind of fans in, you know, I, I mean, I don't even know what Man United fans or Arsenal fans would, would, would feel about it. Like, do they actually want this? Do they want to play? United, United fans, for sure, yes. I, like, just yeah, because right. they've watched their team struggle, and but their team would be locked in. They would be all for it. Right, right. But, like, you know, would ask, like, how do Arsenal fans feel about, like, you know, not playing, I don't know, West Ham or, like, you know, these teams that they played, like, a hundred times in the past and, like, they, like, you, you know, you sit next to a West Ham fan at work and half the fun of, like, you know, smashing them six nothing is like being able to gloat in their face. I mean, English fans probably, it probably would not be very popular in England, I would, I would think. No, and, and there's the other thing of, you know, what kind of makes these big glitzy matchups special is that they are rare, that they're not mm. happening every week. And it was Jurgen Klopp who said a couple of weeks ago, the Liverpool manager, who said, you know, do you really want opera every night? Yeah, because um, he was talking about the Nations League, right? Exactly. But it's the same idea of the, the like, saturation of these huge, meaningful games all the time. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't give you the breathing room to, to appreciate how special they can be. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to end the episode. Uh, guys, go ahead and plug the book. Tell people when it's going to be out, where they can find it, and uh, all of that uh, good information. Yeah, it's called um, The Club. How the English Premier League became the wildest, richest, most disruptive force in sports. Um, it's out December 4th. You can get it, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of those places you get books. We have a website as well. It's theclubbook.com. Um, go buy it. Enjoy.